We're not here just to win an election. We are here to win something for our country. Hello and welcome to Watercooler Conversation. I'm Nick Cater, Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre. The loss of government in a federal election is a sobering moment for any party. Opposition can be frustrating, but it's also a chance to reflect and reconsider the values and principles which should animate every party's activities. Today's guest understands this better than most, having experienced the highs and lows of politics in a parliamentary career that spanned 33 years, including 11 years as Australia's second longest serving Prime Minister. I spoke to John Howard in his Sydney office. Mr Howard, we're recording this, I suppose, almost four weeks after the Liberal Party lost government for only the fourth time in its 78-year history. You were in government uh, the second time it was thrown out of office at an election. You remained with the party for the next 13 years and were there to take the party back into government in in 1996. Given that experience, what would your advice be right now to members of the parliamentary Liberal Party who may be feeling a bit battered, shall we say? My strongest advice is to preserve a, a sense of balance about the outcome. It was a disappointment and we have to learn lessons from it. But the last thing Liberal Party should do is despair and say that we have to completely alter our approach to life. Uh, obviously, you need a post-mortem. Uh, you have to work out what the electorate liked and didn't like about us and what they liked and didn't like about the opposition. Because this was a very hesitant result. Mm. Very hesitant. There have been seven changes of government in this country since World War II. And in a way, Mr Albanese's victory was the most grudging extended to a new Prime Minister by the Australian public of those seven. It's almost as if the public wanted the government, the Morrison government, gone and they stumbled on the Labor Party as the alternative. They didn't warmly embrace it. There's no sense of, of joyous celebration in the communities. I, I know what it's like uh, to heavily lose and, heavily, and, and win very well. And we lost quite heavily <clears throat> in 2007 when Kevin Rudd was elected. And there was in the community something recognisably enthusiastic and keen about the new government. Now, it didn't last terribly long, but that was the mood then. So I would counsel the Liberal Party against despair, and I would count, counsel the Liberal Party against saying, well, this means we have to lurch to the left or the right, or, or, or fundamentally uh, alter our positions. We shouldn't do that. We should understand uh, where we lost votes, we should recognise that the Labor Party's primary vote was lower than ours, but ours was a miserable 35.2% or something, uh, and um, set about rebuilding from that base. And one way of rebuilding is to ask ourselves, did what we offered the Australian people at the last election match 
the fundamental values of the Liberal Party. And I think one of the problems we had at the last election was we didn't have a sufficiently well-developed plan for the future. I know they are almost hackneyed words, a plan for the future, but people do want to be told about where you're going to take them in politics. We had a good record, but the Australian people tend to bank a good record and say, well, that's nice. What have you got for me tomorrow, brother? And that is the tendency they have. I think there's a tendency also to, to imagine that each each loss is uniquely bad. Well, well, it's not. I mean, there are some losses that are, um, one, you know, epoch-making in their dimension. I mean, I think back of my long experience of politics. I guess the, the four um, changes that really stand out. Menzies in 1949 was sensational because it ushered in 16 unbroken years of coalition government and uh, of course began the, the second and longest part of his career as Prime Minister and a man who in my view of course has been our greatest Prime Minister, Bob Menzies. And that was a great victory and, it, and his years did change Australia and lay the foundation of modern Australia. I think the, the victory of uh, Malcolm Fraser in 1975 was very mm. significant. Um, and plainly the victory of Bob Hawke in 83 was attended by a lot of excitement. Hawke uh, was a very successful Labor Prime Minister and uh, he did bring about a different mood in the country. And uh, forgive me for saying so, and I hope I don't sound too self-regarding, but I thought our victory in 96 was significant. Now, they're the ones that I do especially remember. To many Labor Party supporters, of course, Gough Whitlam's win in 1972 was filled with romanticism and sentiment. I understand that. He was a great Labor leader. He did not have a particularly happy time or successful time as Prime Minister, but he was a great Labor leader because he taught them how to win again. And they've been out of office for 23 years. That'll never happen again. The longest period the Liberal Party has spent in opposition was 1983 to 1996. I suppose the question I want to put to you is, mm. what mistakes did you make in hindsight that prolonged that period in opposition? And, and what would be the lessons that the Peter Dutton's team can learn now? Well, I think there were periods when we were in opposition, when we allowed ourselves to be preoccupied with personality differences. I don't subscribe to the view that the rivalry between Andrew Peacock and John Howard had cost the Liberal Party 10 years of government. That's, uh, that's, un that's inaccurate and unfair to both of us. Um, but I think the Liberal Party probably went through a period where there was a there was a preoccupation with that, but I think uh, the even bigger challenge we had was an identity challenge, which came to a head uh, at the time of the Joe for PM campaign. When you think back, if there hadn't been a Joe for PM campaign, we we would have not had to wait up in 1996 to get back into government. 
we could have won in 1987 or 1990. Now, why did that happen? I think because we probably weren't as um, devout about the broad church as we should have been. Many people would see the Joe for PM campaign as an attempt by some on our side of politics to uh, assert a conservative ascendancy. Now, that's always a mistake. We are a broad church. We are a genuine, bona fide composite of classical liberalism and conservatism. And it woe betides the Liberal Party to allow a pitched battle to be fought uh, about that identity. We are both, and we should be adult enough to recognise that. The, the historically low primary vote that you've just referred to, that surely is an indication that we're not the broad church we should be. We, we've lost, well, we'll talk more about the Peels in a minute, but we have lost voters on two fronts. Well, every, both of the major parties. Mm. One of the things that fascinates me about this is that when I go back to the 1960s, and uh, I'm, you're, you're probably a bit younger than I am by a year or two, and you don't remember the 1960s as well as I do, but in a way, the 1966 election was the nadir of the Labor Party's fortunes. Harold Holt's mm. victory in that election gave him on a two-party basis of the biggest victory ever. Um, now, the Labor Party's primary vote at that election was still just on 40%. Yeah. I used to say when I was first involved in politics that a country divided, 40% always voted Liberal, 40% Labor, and 20% move around and read Liberal National for the 40% Liberal. Um, now I think it's closer to almost 30, 30, 40, that's how you feel. And, um, so there has been a, a loosening. And the Labor Party has lost people to the left, to the Greens. And the thing we have to worry about, of course, is that 80 to 90% of those return to the Labor Party via preferences. In the same way, mind you, that uh, back in the 50s and 60s, the uh, Labor Party lost uh, people of the DLP and fortunately those wonderful people returned their preferences or gave their preferences to the Liberal Party. Uh, so in our system of government that's quite important. But we, we have to identify, we have to understand these things and uh, you wanted to talk about the Teals, go ahead. Well I mean this is historic isn't it? We've never before no. lost such a significant number of seats <coughs> to a party other than Labor. It, it is significant. And um, we have to understand that. We have to understand that some of the seats that the Teals won were a product not only of defections from the Liberal Party, but also what I can only call tactical voting decisions mm. by normal Labor Party supporters. Let me give you an illustration. One of the seats we lost was Goldstein in um, metropolitan Melbourne, based on Brighton and Sandringham in that area. Historically a Liberal seat. Um, the swing or the decline in the Labor vote in Goldstein was 17.7%. 
which was greater than the decline in the Liberal vote in Goldstone, mm. which was about 13%. And that, that's reflected in other similar... I think you've, you've, I mean, it's about the starkest example of that comparison that I could find on a quick examination. And now, what does that tell you? It tells you that um, people understand the preferential voting system extremely well, even those who might rail against it. And it tells you that um, uh, Labor voters have worked out that there are certain parts of the country that faced with a choice between Labor and Liberal will always vote Liberal. Mm. But faced with a choice between Liberal and an independent claiming to be at heart a Liberal, which of course they're not, um, will vote for that independent. But it's, it's important to recognise this, isn't it? Because, you know, the Teals have very cleverly presented themselves as the Liberal Party on strike. Uh, yeah, but, yeah. Which they are in part, but to see them as entirely that... It, well, it, well it, it, it's completely erroneous to see them as, as entirely the Liberal Party on strike. I call them anti-Liberal. Yeah because they weren't running in any Labor-held seats. And I will be quite astonished, and I've been astonished before in political life, if they ever run against Labor members who are in any way vulnerable. I'll be very surprised, because at heart their instincts are closer to those of the Labor Party than they are the Liberal Party. It suits them to parade this line, but um, in, in effect they're second preference was always the Labor Party. Not that it mattered because they were either wanting to knock off a sitting Liberal or, uh, or fall on their face. So how should we think of them? Do we think of them as extremely uh, moderate I, no, Liberals I, or I, something I, else? I, I think the important thing, Nick, is not to be become preoccupied with the Teals as a group, but rather to understand what were legitimate grievances they articulated. Mm. I use legitimate in the, in the sense of the word, if they were grievances that could be accommodated consistent with liberal principle. Uh, now, what were two things they talked about? They talked about uh, climate change. They said we um, should do even more on climate change, and they talked about Corruption Commission. I think it was a mistake of the Liberal Party not to put up its Corruption Commission bill and have it voted down. I always took the view when I was in government that if you had an issue that the Labor Party was unlikely to support, the best thing to do was to put it through the Parliament, put it through the House of Representatives, send it up to the Senate and see what the Labor Party did. And if the Labor Party voted against it, you could say to the people, well, we tried. And one of our problems with the anti-corruption anti -commission, anti thing was we didn't put a bill up. We kept saying we had a bill, but mm. yeah. parliaments are there to pass laws. And I, I always, I, let me give you an illustration, make the point. We tried on oh, 30 occasions when we were in government to get our unfair dismissal changes through the Senate that kept being knocked back. The small business community knew where we stood on that and they wanted the changes. They wanted them very keenly. 
But I was always able to say to people in small business who complained to me about it, say, well, we've tried, we keep putting it up. Mm. And they understood and they said, okay. When we didn't like it, didn't say, okay, in the sense I'm happy with the outcome, but okay, we are happy with your bona fides. There, there were other factors, of course, to our, our loss other than the sentiment in those particular mm. leafy, you know, comfortable mm. seats in inner city Melbourne and Sydney. I, could I just say that I, I'd be, I think Liberals should be careful of the adjectives they use about these seats. There's nothing wrong in living in a leafy suburb. I've driven in every morning along a, <laughs> a beautiful tree-lined street. It's very leafy, not increasingly less so now, but we, um, I mean, that's the language that is used by some of our opponents to mock us. Mm. We shouldn't embrace that. I'd take the reprimand on board. No, 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 <laughs> it's not a reprimand of you. Yeah. Uh, I mean, by all means, talk about seats that have been traditionally liberal, but um, all of those seats, many of them I know well, I live in one. Um, you've got a variety of people with a variety of aspirations and there's nothing so monolithic or, or, or uniform about mm. the social life of those parts of Sydney and Melbourne and Perth that um, are radically different from the rest of the country. We are a remarkably egalitarian society and it's one of our greatest assets. I'd agree with that and, and, and the folly of trying to separate people into groups like that. We, yeah. we, we need to think we of We just have to people. be careful what the language we use because I don't have any argument. I mean, they voted in a way I didn't like and uh, I'd like to change that and play my part in changing it and uh, there will be a different set of arguments next time. Mm -hmm. We won't be in government. Um, most of the people who voted for the Teals were people who were grumpy with the government. Well, in three years' time, the government will be the Labor Party. It won't be us. Nonetheless, well, I, I do see an increasing difference in the economic interests of people, let's say, self-funded retirees or people, thanks to a lot of the measures you introduced, you know, now have own shares. Mm. Uh, property prices, of course, have, have been a very good way to invest your wealth. People at that end of their lives of 55 plus are much wealthier by and large than they once were, and certainly much wealthier than under 35s just starting out having trouble getting a foot on the property ladder. And it does seem to me that is part of the, the battle that's going on, that the economic interests of under 35s and over 55s are quite radically different in some ways. And, and the challenge for us as Liberals is to, to find the message that works for both. Is, is that a fair analysis or would you? Well, I think that is a fair analysis, Nick. Um, you've touched on the under 35s. Well, the biggest challenge they face is uh, buying a home. And it's not the only thing they face in life. And uh, there are probably a larger percentage of people now who are uh, renters by choice than renters in transition um, it's just because of changing social patterns and, uh, one of the people one of the reasons is that a lot of people 
remain in education for longer than they used to. Possibly too long. Too long, some, too long. But one of the very good things that the coalition did, albeit at the end, was to produce a good policy on housing. I thought that housing policy was clever. In retrospect, it might have been a good idea to have put it out early, but that's easy to say now. It was something that would have helped at the margins, and probably better than what the government has put forward, but ours won't get tried, theirs will, I assume. Well, particularly important for Liberals, isn't it? Because we, we know, we've seen Robert Menzies increased the... One of the great things about the Menzies period was that when he became Prime Minister, we had a housing rate, <coughs> ownership rate of a little under 50% or something, and by the early 1970s, it was 70%. It's come back a bit. It was a huge change. And... So we should be concerned if it's going and, backwards. And, and we should be concerned about this issue, not just because Menzies presided over a huge increase in home ownership, but because home ownership is a fundamental liberal value. And uh, we are a property-owning um, community. We should encourage people to own property because property gives you stability, continuity, satisfaction, um, self-worth, all of those qualities that ennoble the individual. And we are a party that wants individuals to uh, prosper, at the, not at the expense of the collective, but independently of the collective. At the Menzies Research Centre, we're passionate believers in the power of ideas to change conversations and shape the future. Thanks to podcasts, we've extended our circle of conversations to thousands of people every month. Podcasts are a great medium for think tanks. Listeners turn into podcasts for longer, more sophisticated conversations than they can find on conventional media, and we're very happy to provide them. And thanks to the generosity of our supporters, we can deliver them for free. You can show your support by subscribing to the Menzies Research Centre from just $10 a month. Go to menziesrc.org slash subscribe or click on the link in the podcast notes. You mentioned the broad church, which is a, a, a phrase that we always associate with you as a way of characterising the party. I wonder if when you coined that phrase, you imagined that one day people would become so locked in to certain badges. I'm a liberal, I'm a conservative, I'm a moderate. Uh, almost like that is... Well, I actually coined the phrase, used the phrase to counter self-labelling. When I heard people saying, well, I'm a, you know, I'm a small L liberal. Well, I'm a conservative. I think the best thing that Peter Dutton has said in the few weeks he's been Liberal leader is that I'm neither a smaller Liberal nor a Conservative, I'm a member of the Liberal Party of Australia. Well, that's what I am. I have Conservative views on some things and I have Liberal, even Radical views on others. But I'm nothing better than being a member of the Liberal Party of Australia. I had a long chat to Paul Kelly last week and Paul's advice is that the Liberal Party should start by focusing on the things 
that unite us. And he, in his analysis, the things that unite the party are far, far more numerous and, and far more important than the issues we think divide us. Would you agree with that? Well, he sounds as though he's been channeling me, but I mean, I've said <laughs> for years that the things that unite us are greater and more enduring than things that divide us. And that applies to a whole lot of things. I mean, years ago, the Christian church was in this country was more divided by sectarianism. The divisions between Catholics and Protestants was also counterproductive and foolish. But as religion has come under the hammer and Christianity is more openly assaulted and disdained, um, Catholics and Protestants have quickly come to the conclusion that what unites them in defence of our common faith is infinitely more <laughs> important and enduring than some of the differences that you know, become so increasingly irrelevant as uh, the battle goes on. And a good example, it seems to me, is economics. I mean, back in the 80s and 90s period we've already talked about, it was approach to economic management that really defined the division in the party. We talked about wets and dries and so forth. Yes, I think the, yeah, it, it's a fair analogy, except that, that, I mean, for a long time, Nick, in this country, there was an almost unspoken consensus about economic policy. Everybody 50 years ago believed in high tariffs, centralised wage fixing, a controlled exchange rate. But then as the world changed, those attitudes changed. We had quite a debate in our community about these things. I wonder how many people now would realise that in 1975, the Liberal Party's industrial relations policy encouraged everybody to join a union of their choice. <laughs> is that right? Yeah, yeah it's true. It's, now, I mean, I, people want, want to join a union, that's fine. Uh, I, you know, that just, we, I believe in freedom of association and I'm quite happy to acknowledge that trade unionism has helped a lot of people and done good things for a lot of people. I'm not suggesting otherwise, but because it's the spiritual birthplace of the labour movement. I'm not sure that I'd be into encouraging its expansion. Yeah. No, I think it's good that you've moved on from there. Yeah. <laughs> so my point is really that the economic, those economic battles have been, been settled. There is broad agreement well, within well, the parties. Well, well, I'm not sure they have been settled. I think part of the problem is that we haven't talked a mu very much about economic policy except in the broad. I, I'm, I, in fact, I would say it hasn't been settled. It's, it's been put to one side. I think you've always got to think about economic reform. I have used the analogy of a never-ending foot race. You never get to the finishing line, but you know you've got to keep going because if you stop, your competitors will surge past you. Yes, indeed. And I, uh seems to be right now with the challenge we're facing over inflation it would be good perhaps to reflect on some of the lessons that were taken on board in the 70s and 80s over well i think i think we have to do that we also have to understand that different uh, 
stresses are emerging and different criteria have to be applied, but polit success in politics goes to those who win the argument. And one of the things the Liberal Party should never tire of is winning the argument. I think at times over the last few years we didn't debate issues enough. You can't win an argument just by using slogans. Slogans are important in a campaign. I have a strong view, I've articulated it on many occasions, that the Australian people will accept a big economic reform or a big change, provided two conditions are satisfied. The first condition is you've got to persuade them that it's good for our country. You know, is this good for Australia? That's the first one. The second one is you've got to satisfy the fairness test. We, we are a fair country. We don't like government changes that hurt vulnerable people. We want them to be fair. But if you can meet those two requirements, you'll eventually win the debate. I think of the GST and the attendant tax reform. It's a huge change. It affected people's daily lives in a way that none of the other reforms like floating the dollar and important though they were, did. And because we were able to satisfy them that it would make Australia more competitive, and therefore it was good for Australia, and that we looked after the vulnerable by ensuring there were safety nets and that any increased indirect tax burdens were fully matched, if not exceeded, by personal tax cuts. They went for it. They didn't like the GST in isolation. No, I mean, it's a bit like in isolation going to the dentist. But there were other things that helped um, <laughs> ease the pain. <laughs> because a lot, a lot of research, planning and thought went into that policy, including, I guess, one failed attempt uh, to, to put it in, in Oh, in well, look, there were various attempts over a quarter of a century, but in the end, it, it was a mammoth effort and you know, uh, my colleague, Peter Costello in particular, who was the treasurer at the time, everybody worked together. Um, but we won the argument mm. and, and because we explained its benefits, you, you've got to be willing to engage people. The Australian public is very sensible, it's very sophisticated, doesn't like sometimes words like that being used, but the truth is, if, if, if you take people seriously and say, we want to do this because it will help the country and this is how it will help the country, they'll respond to that because we are an optimistic, uh, fair-minded people. There's a lot of work to do, isn't there? I mean, if you've got Peter Dutton, would, would, have, would hope, be hoped to be back in government in three years' time, but to do that, there's a lot of work to be done in research, in, in researching policies, planning policies, and then persuading the public. Look, there's an enormous amount of work. I mean, you're, um, the, the Menzies Research Centre is right in the middle of this. Because you are needed more than ever now in opposition because you are a generator of ideas. And the Liberal Party never wants to appear uh, that is frightened of new ideas. And, and unfortunately, there's a tendency of some in both parties 
both sides of politics to say, oh, now let's not get to that. Let's just concentrate on presentation. Well, <coughs> presentation is very important, but you've got to have the right thing to present it in the first place. And you've got to understand um, why. And I have seen in my political lifetime uh, a population turned around, sometimes to the advantage, sometimes to the disadvantage of uh, um, the Liberal Party. I remember years and years ago, for a lot of people viewing this program were born, Bob Menzies tried to ban the Communist Party. Now on the face of it, it seemed a terrific idea. In 1951, communism was a worldwide menace. China had just gone communist, Soviet Union controlled a large part of Europe. There were communist trade union officials um, running big unions. Gee, and he wanted to ban the Communist Party because the Constitution wouldn't allow him at the moment to do so. So we said, let, he said, let's just tweak the Constitution so we can. And he started off with a, you know, polls were saying he had an approval rating of 70 or 80 percent on that proposition. And as time went by, that lead was whittled away and whittled away because people said, well, you know, this, sure, communism is bad, but people have got certain rights and they shouldn't be denied a living or denied the opportunity of advancement just because they're a communist. And, and bit by bit, people said, well, no, this is, this is not such a good idea. In other words, <coughs> the other side, which was led by the Labor Party at the time, won the argument. And, um, and, and, the, and the referendum went down, and there have been plenty of, plenty of cases since where, where our side won the argument. And, uh, you mentioned the role of the Menzies Research Centre. It, it seems to me um, Menzies spoke of, he, he, he once said, look, we're not here just to win an election. We are here to win something for the country. Uh, and it's always seemed to me that, that others can get on with the job of winning the election. Our job as a, as a policy research centre is to ensure that having won the election, we've got something in there which will be of benefit for the country. And we don't just get across the line on the unpopularity of the other team or by maligning their character as, as perhaps Labor has done this, this occasion. Well, I think all of that is absolutely right. Um, <clears throat> you've got to have a clear idea of what your core beliefs or what your faith is and what you want to do when you get into power. And if you don't have that, you'll fail as a government. And I, I look back on the years we've been in power since uh, um, I've been involved in politics and the most successful years uh, on both sides of politics really have been when, when you've had an agenda to introduce. There's nothing more rewarding in public life than to be given the opportunity to implement a serious reform, get it through, and then see its benefits. But if you don't have the ideas in the first place, and that is where bodies like the <coughs> Menzies Research Centre come into play, if you don't have those ideas in the first place, well, um, when you get to power, you, you lose direction and eventually uh, lose office. Then we go back to the, the things the party tends to quarrel about, climate change, some social mm, mm. issues. 
how do we accommodate people with well, those radically different views in a, in a party like ours? Well, in a party like ours, you've got to accommodate them by openly accepting that there's a range of views, debating them and then uniting behind the, the outcome. There's nothing, no rocket science involved in that. The climate change issue is difficult because there is a range of views in our parties. I mean, I have said quite openly that I'm an agnostic on climate change. I'm not utterly convinced that all of the science is in. Um, I'm not. But I accept that that is probably a minority view at the moment. And, and I go along with what the party decides. But there has to be a civility about the arguments. There has to be an acceptance that there is a way of resolving these arguments, but they've got to be conducted on a rational basis and they've got to be based on fact, not on emotion or pseudo-religion. Agnostic has a particular meaning and I'm not an agnostic on most things, but I am on climate change. Civility is an interesting question, isn't it? Because during your time in government, people forget this, but I remember there was some very uncivil debate and comment about you. We used yeah. to talk about a whole group of people called the Howard haters mm. who would mm. be quite vociferous and quite crude in their attacks on you. But it does seem to me this has gone to a whole new level with social media, which didn't for the large part exist during your time in government. Would you agree that... that oh, look, I, I agree that social media is, has um, intensified the vitriol. Um, it's something I'm not directly aware of because I don't use social media. It's a luxury. People much younger than I perhaps can't afford, but um, I, I don't use it. And I'm not sorry that I'm in that happy position. I think it has all the things. Maybe it'll find its level. We've got to be, we've got to be, we've got to learn to handle social media, to win the debate in social media, but not in the process, of course, to uh, forfeit things that are valuable components of a liberal being. But it must make governing harder. Well, it does make governing harder, but if you, and the old Harry Truman quote, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. <laughs> I mean, I recall during when you would have been in, in power, catching the train to work and people would be reading one of three or maybe four newspapers. Mm, mm. Now they're all looking at their mobile phone. Who knows what they're looking well, at? Well, but a lot of them are looking at mobile phones that carry newspapers. I mean, even I find that sometimes that I'm driving around, I, I'm, 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 I'm reading uh, the Oz on my mobile phone. But there's a whole lot of other things people could be reading too. Yeah, well, I, it's different. In terms of the political debate and persuading people, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, we obviously makes life hard. Well, it makes it different. You know, the despair, it's, it's hard, but it's, it's, more importantly, it's different. And let's not cut them any slack. <laughs> no, that's right. So, okay, so there are challenges for the Liberal Party, obviously. Big challenges, some, some new challenges that we haven't seen before. We've already spoken of mm. those. Overall, though, how do you now view the Liberal Party? Uh, well, look, the Liberal Party has obviously had a disappointing federal election result. But it was in power for nine years. 
which was longer than the combined Rudd-Gillard-Rudd period, longer than the period in office of the Fraser government and longer than the period in office of the Whitlam government. Now, let's preserve a sense of proportion. We still hold office in the largest state, and it's a big challenge the Liberal Party has to make sure we hold on to government in New South Wales. And uh, that's got an election early next year. There's no natural party of government in Australia. There never has been. Sometimes you've had long periods of federal government on one side matched by long periods of state government on the other. When I was Prime Minister, I never dealt with a Liberal Premier of New South Wales. I dealt with Labor Premiers all the time. I dealt, first of all, most of the time, with Bob Carr and then with Morris Yemmer, uh, who I, I found a very decent man to deal with. Uh, but I would have been much happier dealing with a Liberal Premier. And when Bob Hawke was, um, was, was Prime Minister, I think there was mainly still Labor Premiers in New South Wales, but there were Liberal Premiers in other states. So this idea that you've got a natural party of government is, is bunkum. That said, the strength of the party in some states now must surely be a matter of concern. Well, we had a very bad result in Western Australia at the last state election. They to get reduced to only two bespeaks not just the popularity of, the, of Mark McGowan. He's obviously quite popular, but uh, my experience has been that those, those things don't, don't automatically translate. I, mean, I, I remember a, there was a long period of time in, when, when Peter Beattie and I were simultaneously popular in Queensland. The Liberal Party, most of the time when I was in government, polled very well in Queensland, but at the same time, for a long time, so did the Labor Party led by Peter Beattie. So you can get those, those things. But we've got a big, we've got an organisational challenge in, in Western Australia, obviously. You don't get reduced to two seats in a state that's previously returned a lot of Liberal governments uh, without uh, there being something wrong. And, my sense is that that is understood by a growing number of people in Western Australia, but the Liberal Party in Western Australia has got to be allowed the chance of sorting that out. And I don't think it would react to heavy-handed Eastern bullying. The safe seats, we're talking about this in the context of Victoria. The safe seats don't seem to exist anymore, do they? No, I think um, there aren't too many, even before the last election, the, the margins in Victoria, for a number of reasons, all of which I don't fully understand, uh, have, have reduced compared with the margins uh, prior, to, again, to the last election in New South Wales. Something of that has got to do with the, uh, the, the character of Melbourne and the character of Victorian society and the strength of uh, the Labor brand in Melbourne and the ongoing consequences of uh, the uh, the Labor Party split all those years ago, and also the the size of the public service in Victoria. Mm. There is a tendency, as evidenced by the fact that 
as a result of the last federal election, there is no representation at all of the Liberal Party from the Australian Capital Territory in the National Parliament. And it's probably the first time, certainly since um, there were senators from the ACT, and um, it's an interesting place. It's probably the most heavily public service jurisdiction in the country, and it's so non-liberal that there isn't, it is not, they've got what, two or three federal members in the lower house and two senators and none of them is a liberal. That's right. Maybe that's a factor in a state like South Australia as well, where you've had a growing yeah, public sector mm. and, and the Liberal Party voters declined. Yeah, except the Liberal Party did have a good win and then lost. Uh, that's mm. another. Look, I, I don't pretend to have all these answers. I, I'm aware of some of the challenges and I've just got to be one of the, the crowd in trying to work out what the response is. Your message, if I read you correctly, is not to worry too much about that, to get on with the fundamentals of... Well, it, well, well there's no point in going to water. I mean, we, had a, we had a bad outcome, we didn't, an outcome we didn't like, but it's not a destructive outcome. There are bases there for rebuilding. And one of the good bits of what's happened over the last few years is that it is now possible, as state election results indicate, to regain office in one term. I mean, it's happened in South Australia, certainly the Labor Party, it happened in Queensland, and uh, it, it can happen. It almost happened at a federal level, of course, federal? in 2010. Oh, 2010, if the Liberal Party hadn't made it one or two pre-selection errors, we'd have, we'd have uh, well, certainly um, not had to put up with a minority Labor government. Of course, it almost happened in 2010. Mm. We're very close. So that idea that once you're out, well, you're out for a couple of terms, while it is still m more likely than not, it's not as inevitable as it once was. And one thing, looking at the current parliamentary team, there seems to be a unity around I think the leadership, the, which, I think which we haven't omens, seen in previous times when we've... I think the omens are very good, um, considering we've just lost. Mm. <laughs> uh, we've got great unanimity in view of the leadership, but there's no contest. For either the leader or deputy leader, I mean, Peter Dutton and Susan Lee, people accepted them. That's a good balance. I think it's good that we, for the first time ever, have a Liberal leader from Queensland. We've had plenty from Victoria and New South Wales. We had one from South Australia. But I think it's a good idea we've got somebody from other than New South Wales and Victoria. Not that I've got anything. I mean, I don't, I don't sort of have too many state loyalty, none whatever. In fact, I'm interested in the benefit of the whole country. But therefore, having somebody from Queensland for a change is a good thing. I think his choices of shadow cabinet have been excellent got some good new people. Um, I think the, the, when it comes to personnel, the biggest single loss of the last election was Josh Frydenberg. It was a real tragedy for the party because person of great ability, been a very good treasury, been a diligent local member. And uh, according to all the lights, he should not have lost, but I don't think he's lost. Uh, more than three years, I think you'll be back one way or another. You think so? I do. Good. I'm sure. 
Finally, I just want to deal with the issue of what we call the culture wars. There's been a tendency to think that's a distraction from the real business of politics. But it seems to me that many of the issues that we label as culture wars are actually very central to the defence of liberalism and liberal principles. We have to fight on some of this, these issues or, or lose ground even further. Oh, look, of course I would agree with that. Like the very expression, culture wars, is it, it's invoked to <clears throat> intimidate centre-right people from questioning propositions because there's something almost odious about getting involved in a cultural action, getting involved in a, in a war of words about the uh, future of our country. It, it, it's about <clears throat> defending, when necessary, traditional values. I mean, I take the view that you ought to hang on to things that we've always hung on to if they continue to be a benefit to the country. But when they're no longer a benefit to the country, you get rid of them. Yeah, there's nothing particularly re revolutionary or scary about that. It just happens to be the uh, the, the common sense approach. I mean, we have over the years changed attitudes towards uh, um, people's participation in certain things, uh, uh, and, and we should continue to do that, where there's a benefit of the community. And I don't think it, we should be defensive. I think there is a tendency on the part of <clears throat> Some people in on the centre right say, "Well, you don't want to engage in these things because just on their own they don't amount to much." Uh, when you put them with other things that on their own don't amount to much, you get something that amounts to quite a lot, yeah. and you've got to be uh, prepared to defend those issues. But e equally, though, you have to accept that in the liberal tradition on <clears throat> some social issues. There can be differences of view, and you ought to allow those differences to flourish in the open. I mean, I, I had a practice on certain social issues, and say so you have a free vote. I remember years ago we had a, a, a referendum on the republic in this country. Well, my support for the current system is well known, and it's not going to change. But when I was prime minister, and that issue came up, I said, let's. Let people have a free vote. I'd say seventy percent or so of the parliamentarians were opposed to a republic. Thirty percent were in favour. They people participated in the public debate. Debate took place, and uh, we all met happily at a cabinet meeting the following Monday and got on with uh, our responsibilities for running the country. Did the pub? Did the party fall apart? No. Um, did people become enemies of each other? No. It, it, it's, it's got to be those things. Have, have, we have to have a uh, an adult maturity about those sorts of things and accept that sometimes there's no point in trying to get a consent. But you only do that on 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 isolated occasions and on things that are genuinely uh, accommodating to differences of view. You can't do that on you know, whether you're going to have a different tax system or something. Mr. Harris, thank you very much for your thank time. Thank you. And for bringing some perspective. Well, <laughs> much that. needed. Try. Thank you. 
you've been listening to another water cooler conversation brought to you by the Menzies Research Centre. We'd like to bring you many more, of course, and you can help us by subscribing from just $10 a month. Go to www.menziesrc.org slash subscribe. I'm Nick Cater, and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.